with me this morning in Matthew. Um, looking at chapter 10, we concluded our series in Amos on Wednesday night. Uh, and to be honest with you, I could, I could use myself a, a bit of a reprieve from the, from the strong, fierce uh, language of Amos uh, before we get into the other minor prophets. Uh, but I was thinking about uh, the seriousness uh, of being a people of God, uh, the, the accountability involved in that, the responsibility um, that God uh, does not choose a people and then disregard uh, his own holiness or their sanctification. Uh, it, is a, it is an ongoing uh, work in the life of a believer to transform us to the image of Christ. And I was thinking about that and also in the context of uh, being a disciple of Christ. Uh, the scriptures give us admonitions in regards to counting the cost of being a disciple of Christ. And uh, I think it's in our nation, it's been a fairly comfortable place to be a professing Christian for many generations. Uh, but we see things uh, changing and the minor prophets reminded us of that. Uh, I was talking with someone this week and I mentioned that uh, it is uncanny uh, to read the rebukes of God to his own people in their day and realized that in many ways America uh, is repeating many of those same sins. Uh, the corruption, the deception, the self-pursuit, self-interest, uh, pridefulness, self-exaltation, uh, the very sins that Israel brought God's judgment upon themselves for, uh, we are involved in as a nation, uh, even down to child sacrifice on the altars of abortion industry, even in our day. So if Israel was ripe for the judgment of God, the summer basket, uh, America is no less ripe, certainly. And so that environment makes me wonder whether or not we truly want to be a disciple. And I was reading the various texts involved with that. There are many, but I was drawn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus has called his 12 there and warns them of the difficulty ahead in verse 16. In fact, I actually quoted the last of this to someone fairly recently, but he said to them there, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But then he goes on to warn them that men will turn them over to the authorities. It will not be easy to be a disciple. You are bearers of light in a dark world, and the darker the world, the less acceptable you will be. In fact, the only way you will find acceptance in the world is to, is to moderate your light and make it not quite as, as, as stark. Uh, I, I get up really early on Sunday mornings, I, a little earlier than normal this morning, 4.35, and and I went into the kitchen table and we have a dimmer switch on the light there and I didn't want to haul the light shining down the hall and disturbing hope. So, so I turned the dimmer down and I sat down and opened my Bible and, and I thought that's the way we are. As Christians, sometimes we, in order to survive in the darkness, we turn the light down a little bit and it makes it more accommodating for us. I don't know about you, but since I was a kid, I cannot stand to walk out of a dark room and somebody turned the bright light in the house on. I'm like this for a little bit until I adjust. And I'm afraid that's what we've been doing in the last, at least the last several decades as Christians is as it's gotten darker around us, we toned the light down rather than leaving the light up. And as a result, we've gotten a comfortable place to live in this world. But as the world gets darker, what little bit of light is still shining is becoming offensive to a darkened world. And, and it's going to get costly to be a disciple, plain and simple. And everybody here today professing Christ or those contemplating coming to know Christ or, or trusting in Jesus Christ, that is a count, you, that is a cost you need to count. Because the, the consequences are real, especially as the world grows darker. So let's read those verses uh, together. In verse 24, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? 
therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would bring the truth to bear in the hearts of everyone here, my own included. Lord, I pray that our eyes might be open to the serious thing that it is to be born again and living as light in a dark world. Lord, as much as our flesh would like to be accommodated and made comfortable and accepted in every, every sphere of society where we would uh, like to be liked, Father, the very realities of our profession and the Christ whom we profess and the God whom we profess come into direct conflict with a world so darkened as ours. And so, Father, I pray that you might impress upon all those who would call themselves disciples this morning to evaluate again what it cost. And for those this morning who are, who are thinking in terms of trusting in Christ or have been being moved towards that place, Lord, I pray that they would, with open eyes and sober minds, understand what it is that they are committing themselves to. And, Father, I pray that by your grace, you have called us and that by great, your grace we will be sustained in the midst of the darkest of times and we might be found faithful unto the very end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In these passages, uh, I want to share just what he says in these brief passages in regards to being a disciple. It was interesting because the passage that came to my mind initially was when he says to them in verse 35, regarding a man uh, not bringing peace, but a man's household being his own enemies. And I, I'd written in my notes, uh, they, they, they become enemies in the sense that they contend against Christ for our highest love and devotion. Now, they literally become enemies in the context because that's a quotation from Micah 7, 6, and, and they're living in a godless generation where a man's own children would turn him over to the authorities because his faith is so offensive. So, so this is a literal enemies, but I think in some ways they are enemies from our own perspective in that they, they vie for the, for the devotions of our hearts, the highest devotion and love in our own hearts. So they become enemies in some ways in that sense. That's what drew me to this passage. But then as I began to study through the passage, I began to realize that the characteristics he gives of a disciple of Christ here are sobering and are needful that we hear these. Obviously, he doesn't touch on those here, but in John chapter 3, prior to becoming a disciple of Christ, there must be a new birth. You don't, you don't bring that about on your own. You don't merely proclaim it. It is an act of a sovereign God who acts up by his grace and brings a dead man to life. And there is the affirmation of the spirit in the heart of that living man now that understands that he has been brought from death unto life. He has literally been born again. He is a new creation. There is no discipleship without that. 
You can, you can narrow Christianity down to a laws and try your best to abide by those. You can decide that Christianity and Judeo-biblical principles are the best, best way to live in a world or to govern a world. You can do all of those things and without the new birth, you are no less under condemnation to do that than you are if you neglected that altogether. You must be, John says, born again. Nicodemus had his own questions. Nicodemus was a righteous man, a man of the law, and, and, and among his peers, he would have been considered an expert in those things and righteous in every way. But Nicodemus had questions for Jesus, and Jesus told him very plainly, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You can't even see it without the new birth. Later in the same passage, he tells him that he can't enter into it either without the new birth. So the new birth is brought about by the Spirit of God, by God through His Spirit who moves as He wills, brings the new birth to be, and in the new birth we see or behold the kingdom, and in beholding the kingdom we confess and are entered into the kingdom. All begins with the new birth. So if you're in this room today and and you call yourself a disciple and there's no new birth and you are not a disciple of Christ. You cannot be. You cannot be. He doesn't get into that in Matthew here, but he does in John. In fact, in John 8, 30 through 36, he gives kind of a sequence that I always like to rehearse when I'm sharing with folks. But in this new birth, there is a believing. And in this believing, there is a continuing in the word and in a continuing in the word, there is what is called really discipleship or you become a follower of Christ when you believe and you're continuing in his word. And in this continuance and this discipleship, you begin to understand and have a knowledge of the truth. And, and the more full that knowledge becomes and grasp of that becomes, the greater the freedom that you know. That's a sequence that he gives in John 8. And so Jesus isn't dealing that with that necessarily here, although what he says can encapsulate that as well. But it begins with the new birth and it begins with this commitment to abide in the word of Christ and to be a follower of Christ. That's the beginning of this discipleship. So in verse 24 in Matthew, he says here, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. So the disciple in this passage is first a student of Christ. The practice was in those days that a, a man would assign or call to himself men whom he thought had potential and they would basically come and live life with him. It wasn't just a formal setting in the classroom. There was place for that. But they would shadow him throughout his life and observe him under different circumstances and see how he brought the truth to bear. They, are, they were students of their master or their teacher. And Jesus is saying of us as disciples, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are a student. You will always be a student. You may be an advanced student. You may be approaching mastery of the doctrines themselves, but you will never cease to be a student because you will always be in the school of Christ. He is your teacher. Now, God uses various instruments. There are teachers and preachers that he gives to the church as gifts to the church whereby the people might grow in their knowledge. So there are various instruments that God gives, but God is the teacher. Christ, he says, is the teacher, and you and the one who he's given to the church to teach are themselves students of Christ. Always learning from Christ. Not only the word of Christ, but observing the life of Christ and examining the life of Christ. How did he interact in this situation? How did he interact in this situation? And that's not easy. And it takes a spirit, I think, to give discernment. Because Jesus knew when to be gentle and Jesus could be firm. And he knew exactly when to do all without flaw and without error. We are students of Christ. Christ is the one whom we learn from, even if it is through other instruments. Let me just say a word here. 
I'm all for reading and reading widely. Faithful men of God who have proclaimed the truth and done expository works through the years. But there is no replacement for the scriptures, for a yearning heart for truth, and for a spirit-given discernment. Study the Bible. That is where the master does his teaching. Open the word Stay in the Word. Don't leave the Word. Stay with the Word. Let the Word by the Spirit of God transform you to the image of Christ. Christ is our teacher. And as disciples, you are always and ever the student of Christ, first and foremost. Being wise in regards to the instruments that he uses. Second, in that same passage, not only are you a student, a disciple is a slave. I use that word intentionally. Some people might have said a servant. But he means here a bond slave, one who has attached himself to a master. You've heard me preach before from Luke 17, one of my favorite passages of Scripture that describe what it is to have faith. Where the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And then he suddenly launches in this thing. He says, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you'd say that this mountain be removed into the sea and it would be done for you. And then he goes into this discourse that seems out of place in regards to a servant's relationship to his master. And at the end of that, he says, once the servant has done all that his master has commanded, does the servant think that now he is a profitable servant? No. The servant says, he is my master. I have done only that which is my duty to do. I know my place as a slave and I know my master as the authority. And then right on the heels of that, he encounters 10 blind men or 10 lepers who want to be healed. And he, and he doesn't, they don't say a single word to them. He just simply says, go show yourselves to the priest. He don't say you're healed. He doesn't say, I'm going to heal you. He doesn't say anything in regards to it at all. He simply says to these men that want to be healed, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they turn, they are healed. And one comes back to give him thanks, by the way. But it's a demonstration of the perfect relationship between a slave and his master. He used that incident of ten lepers to demonstrate the principle that he was saying. I, didn't, I simply commanded them to go show yourselves to the priest. They didn't ask questions. They didn't say why. They didn't question why they weren't healed yet. Then they would go show them. They didn't reason it out. They heard the word of the master and they obeyed without, without pause, without reservation and the healing followed. I think Jesus performed that actual miracle to affirm what he's just saying to them in regards to a slave to his master relationship. A disciple is a slave of Christ. He speaks, you obey. That's what we ought to be striving for. He doesn't speak and then I negotiate on what obedience looks like. He speaks, I look to His Word, I follow the prompting of the Spirit, and I strive to obey. I have to put to death the flesh in order to do that. I have to set aside every other desire of my flesh to do that. I have to desire Him and, and pleasing Him and honoring Him and obeying Him as greater to me than my own comfort or satisfaction in that moment. A disciple is a slave to his master. He is a servant to his master. Are you a disciple? I entitled the message, who would be a disciple? That's the question for us all today. Who would be a disciple under these contexts? I've shared with you before, I heard, a, I heard an evangelist appeal to a group of young people that if they wanted to be a, the best football player they could be, they needed Jesus in their lives. And I thought to myself, why not tell them the truth? If you want to lay football on the line as possibly a, a, satis, a sacrifice in order to prefer Christ more, then come forward and speak to Christ. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a, a, a healthy spine to play another play in football. Christ offers more than an excellent football game or a successful business. He offers himself and you as a vessel to display his glory. Discipleship is to be a student and to be a slave to Christ. In verse 25 as well, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. That really touched my heart this week. I wrote here, the, the disciple is content, content 
to be conformed to the likeness of his master and his teacher. It is enough. That's not minimalist. That's, that's reality. I want to follow Christ. He is my teacher. He is my master. I am his slave. I am his servant. But I will never become him. He, has, he alone is, the, is God. I will never become Christ. It is enough for me. It is my contentment and my satisfaction to become more like Christ, to bear the image of Christ, to display the glory of Christ. That's the disciple's true desire and his contentment. He's not looking for exaltation. He's not looking for a, a plateau or a platform from which to expound all of, his, all of his wisdom and knowledge. He is looking to be like Christ. All that Christ is, he wants reflected in his own life. He desires Christ and he admires Christ in every way. And if he could but become like Christ in some way, he would be content with that. What are you discontent with as a disciple? Think of all the things that come into our lives that make us discontent. We don't have enough money. Our health's not good enough. All these things that are, are causing discontent in our life. It is, it, is, it is enough for the disciple that he be like Christ. Not that every circumstance be good. Not that he have great health. Not that he have a prospering business. It is enough for him that he become like Christ. If it means a failing business or failing health or catastrophe or, or disaster, if it produces a Christ-likeness in him, it is enough for him. Is that a disciple? That's a disciple of Christ. It is enough for him that he be like his master. It is enough. Man, I, I was really convicted by this because I get discontent and stalled traffic. I mean, we're, 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 we're vessels of discontent. But the disciple of Christ finds his contentment in that he is being sanctified and transformed to the image of his Christ. You hear me quoted all the time, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. We don't know yet what we shall be, but we know this. When we see him, Christ, we will be like him. The catalyst for being like Christ is seeing Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? Would you be a disciple of Christ? Will you be content to be conformed to his likeness? In verse 25 as well, the disciple expects and even accepts that he will be maligned as, as a true disciple. He says there, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Notice here, the, the teacher and the slave are now members of the household. Literally in that day they were. The teacher, the student would practically live with his master, his teacher, and the slave would live with his master. They were a part of his household. Well, if they call the head of my household Christ, the devil... How much more will they malign you? The true disciple expects and accepts the malignment. It's amazing to me how, how some people will get offended if they're called a name, but they'll sit and listen to people blaspheme the fair name of Christ all over the newscast and in public and every other way. They would, they would, they would more, more likely endure a blasphemous comment about their master as they would to hear one insult of themselves. We are overly sensitive, by the way, in our generation, not, among, not, not only among Christians, but everybody. We are hypersensitive. After all, if I'm God, how dare anyone insult me? That's the ideology of our generation. But the Christian, the disciple of Christ, understands the offensiveness of Christ because he was once in darkness and was offended and has brought into light and now embraces Christ. He understands that the dark world does not want the master, does not want Christ, and therefore does not want them. They accept that, they expect it, and they accept it as a testimony of their union with Christ. Man, how intolerant we are over insults, aren't we? We really are. Especially Christians getting their dander up these days because <clears throat> they, they, the culture seems to want to silence us at every turn and, and we're ready to take up arms and become militants in many ways against the dark society. That's what dark folks do. That's what people living in darkness do. They are offended by the light. And the more Christ-like you are, the more light you're shining into dark places. And if they called him a demon, they're going to call you that and worse. Take heart, Christian. It's proof that you belong to him. The disciple expects and accepts these things. I love verse 26 as well. But he does not fear 
The disciple doesn't fear trusting that truth. I think the truth and his faith will ultimately be vindicated. I think that's what he means here in verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. Who? Those who malign you. Do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's in all the terms. Not only about them and their hypocrisy, but also about the validation or the vindication of the truth that you're proclaiming and the faith that you are expressing in this Christ. Do not fear the one who maligns you. There is a day coming. We've been reading about it in the Minor Prophets for Israel. But there is an ultimate judgment day coming where all the deceptions and all the darkness of this world will be exposed for what it is. And the faithful Christian and the faith and the truth of the disciple will be exposed to be and vindicated to be what it is. The disciple understands this. He does not fear those who malign him. And listen, that's a high calling because some of those who malign you may one day take up arms against you. If you don't believe it, ask first century Christians. They were maligned at first. They were even insulted by calling them Christians, which literally meant little Jesus, little Christ. It was a derogatory term to begin with that they embraced. Why? Because they were maligned for the, for the nature, for the likeness of Christ that they were bearing. And so they embraced the, the derogatory term. But that wasn't enough. And later on, they were taken to the Colosseum and burned at the stake and crucified and thrown to the wild beasts because of their light shining in the darkness. So don't think malignment won't escalate to sword. The disciple understands that. The true disciple understands that. He does not fear, however, understanding that there is a day of judgment coming and a day of vindication for the truth and for the saints and for their faith. In verse 23 or 27, the true disciple is a faithful hearer and witness. He says there, what I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. I'm focusing on two things there. What I tell you and what you hear. The true disciple hears the words of Christ. We hear it primarily through His Word, but we hear it as well as the Spirit brings the truth to bear in our lives. There is a spiritual discernment given to the disciple, and he opens the Word and he hears Christ speak. I've talked to people about that and have these debates about the authority of Scripture, and I always wind up in the same place. The Scriptures are self-authenticating in that the Spirit of the Christian dwelling in the Christian reads the truth, and it rings true and eternally true, not man-true, but true, eternally true. There is, a, there is a self-authenticating quality to the Word of God. So there, the true disciple is a faithful hearer of Christ. And of the word of Christ. If you say you're a disciple of Christ and you never open your Bible, then you're not faithfully hearing Christ. You may be getting impressions in your spirit, but those could be subject to emotions or to whims or to current trends or to emotionalism. But if the word of Christ, if you're in the word of Christ and the word of and the spirit of Christ is confirming the truth of God in the word, then you are a faithful hearer of the Word and the truth and of Christ. Let me ask you this morning, disciple, who, those who would be disciples, do you hear Christ? Is the Bible just reduced down to a book of rules for you? Have you got a New Testament theology that gives you all the rules to living a godly life, but, but you never hear Christ speak through the Word? There is a difference. There is a difference. And let me just say that if I'm in conversation with someone very long, I can see the difference. They can have a very, very firm grasp of theology, but there is no life. There is no no bubbling up joy in the Christ that it describes. And there's a biblical witness. Jesus said to the religious leader, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which speak of me. You're looking at the scriptures. You have ears but cannot hear. You have eyes but cannot see. Why? Because the spirit of Christ is not speaking to you. You're not hearing the spirit of Christ. Would you be a disciple? Are you hearing Christ? Are you hearing Christ? The spirit of Christ through the word of Christ. Not only is there a hearing there, but paired with that as well, he says, 
What, you, what I tell you in the darkness and what you hear whispered in your ear, he says of that, speak in the light and proclaim upon the housetop. So not only is a disciple a faithful hearer, he is a faithful proclaimer of what he has heard. You say, I hear Christ. He speaks to me all the time. Have you shared that with anybody this week? Well, no, I don't really do. It's not, kind of, not in my wheelhouse. You're not a disciple. You're not being a disciple. A disciple hears what he speaks and hears it whispered into his ear and then goes out and proclaims it even upon the housetop. That's where you want to get a hearing. Now, there's some Christians that will slide around some corner where it can't be overheard and proclaim what they heard. But I love the imagery. No, get on the housetop. All the people walking by, all those in the house, all those who are at a glance or at a mere distance, yell it out, proclaim what you've been hearing through the word of Christ. Proclaim it that way. It really goes along with the Great Commission. That's what we're to be doing. I understand that some people have a capacity to do that in other ways that others may not have. But everybody, every disciple of Christ who hears the word of Christ is in some way communicating what he has heard to those around him, particularly those who are without the knowledge of Christ. Some way, some way. Would you be a disciple of Christ and remain silent about all that you're hearing from Christ? I'll just give you a word of personal testimony. I can't. I can't. Having heard from Christ and his word is what put me standing in this place. Because I am compelled to want to communicate this thing he's been speaking to me through the scriptures. And every Christian knows what I mean. You are overwhelmingly compelled to speak that word that you have heard from Christ. It is a driving, it is a driving motivator that will make you make yourself a fool in the public's eye to say the word of Christ. Would you be a disciple? Then be a faithful hearer and a witness of what you have heard from the word of Christ. In verse 28, I think this is true as well, but verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The true disciple of Christ will have a deep reverence for God Almighty. You heard me say it as we preach through Amos, but and a couple of times through Jonah and Nahum as well, that God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not an elf on the shelf. He's not something that you can move around in your life to a convenient place. It's not a, not a God whom you can bring in when things are going bad and sit back on the shelf when life is going good. He is a God who has called into existence all that is. And He is not to be dictated to at all. Our best response and safest response is to fall before such a God in repentance. And as Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am unraveled in the presence of this God. A true disciple will have an innate, an inherent reverence for God like that. If you, if you find me a professing Christian that speaks lightly of God... I heard a radio host who claims to be a Christian and is a conservative last week before last. And he, and he made this little joke and they were talking to someone who was a vegetarian and he says, oh, I'm pretty sure Christ was not a, a vegetarian. And the guy said, what do, you, what do you mean? How do you know? How would you know that? And he says, because he says to his servant, well done. My good and faithful. He didn't add the last part. He said, well done. And I shuddered in my car. I literally shuddered in my car. Don't you ever, radio host, call yourself a Christian again because you are an embarrassment to Christ with that view and that low view of Christ. The true disciple will not find that humorous at all. You have just insulted his master. You have just insulted the one who brought into being his very life and saved him from a sinner's hell, eternal hell, and you have just trashed or made small, made little, the one whom is great in his heart. That's the true disciple. He has a deep and I would say healthy reverence for God Almighty. He is not to be trifled with. And as far away as this world gets from him and as much as darkness exalts in its darkness and as much as they celebrate their debauchery in this world, there is a God who is calling them into account someday. And he is not to be trifled with. And everyone will know that someday. I love Philippians 2. 
Every knee will bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's every knee. It doesn't just say believer knees. In fact, if it's below the earth, it suggests to me that every knee in hell and in heaven and what, and what remains on earth will one day bow and acknowledge that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who rejected Christ all their days will in hell have to bow the knee and acknowledge who he is. That is not a God to be trifled with. And the disciple of Christ, those who would follow Christ, have that deep reverence for God. They ought to have that deep reverence for God. In verse 29 and 31, the true disciple possesses a proper self-esteem. I, I would say even a humility. Verse 29, he says, There are not two sparrows sold for a sin, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. That's a description of self-esteem that you won't get in the world. You ever think about this passage uh, this, this word translated sin, I think, was Assyrian in the Greek. There was no smaller denomination of coinage. It was a small copper coin. And, and sparrows are so worthless, you couldn't go to the market and say, I'd like to have one sparrow. And, and they'd say, well, that's, I can't sell one. You can't, you can't break a cent in half. That's the smallest coinage we got. Well, how many can I get for a cent? He says, two. So essentially, one of them's worthless. If you got one for a penny, one spare is worthless. Because they're so worthless, they're so without value that they're only a half a cent apiece, and we don't even make money that small. That's what he's saying. That simple little sparrow that's not even worth a half a cent, if it falls out of the air in mid-flight, it did not fall apart from your father. I think about that often when I watch the birds and the trees in the air. I said not too long ago in, in speaking, just, just opining in regards to, I've never seen that happen. Have you ever seen a bird in flight fall that you didn't shoot? <laughs> I haven't. I've never watched a bird just flying along and just have a heart attack and fall out of the sky. But they do. In fact, they fall all over the place. In fact, you never see a bunch of dead animals laying around, but, but they're bound to be dying every day. They don't live that long. All over the world and all in the woods back behind my house, there are animals falling one by one, day by day. Do you realize the implication here? Not a single one of them were doing so apart from your father. And you would consider them worthless. But then he turns to the man and says, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. That's a higher count for some of us than others, but the Lord knows the exact number. He knows the exact number. Every single one of them, just like He knows the sparrow that fell that you had no clue about. You didn't think the Lord paid attention to sparrows. They're only a half a cent. You can buy them by the dozen in the marketplace for practically nothing. But they were falling all over the world and not a single one of them was falling that was falling apart from the Father's knowledge and understanding and providential will. And neither are the hairs growing in your head outside of the knowledge of your Father. And to me, that brings a healthy self-esteem. Not so much that He values us in, as it is that He has demonstrated His value in redeeming one back to Himself that was deserving of condemnation. We had rebelled against such a God and were under condemnation, but by His grace He pulled us from death unto life and He has counted the very hairs of my head. That tells me that if a sparrow doesn't fall, neither does a hair out of my head apart from the Father's knowledge. And He encourages them here. The disciple understands what he is to God. And you can say his value, you are more valued by God. And, and in our generation, there are those who would jump on that. See there, I'm special. I think you're interpreting your value wrongly. It is the God who has assigned his attention and his favor towards you that establishes your value. And your value is created in the image of God. But a proper self-esteem you know, Christians can be subject to overinflated self-esteems as well, self-esteem as well. In fact, I've said this for years and I believe it with all of my heart. The, the, the distinguishing, marking characteristic of the Christian as far as his personality and his character should be humility if he rightly understands who he is. Who he is. 
I always like the term of broken pots or a pot of clay. We are, we are but clay. Second Corinthians 4 says he has put this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why, why put such a treasure in an earthen vessel so that the glory might be of God? Because we can look at the vessel and say, it's broke. It's not, it's not glorious at all. In fact, I'd throw it out. It has no value at all. But he speaks life and puts this treasure, the Holy Spirit, into this broken pot. And the whole world knows that the broken pot is nothing in and of itself. But the light shining out of that broken pot is something otherworldly or outside of this world. And it is Christ and it is the glory of God. And the Christian ought to be humbled by that. Not exalted in his self-estimation, but exalted in his evaluation of the glory of God. So I think humility should be a marking characteristic of a disciple. Verse 32 and 33, the disciple holds fast to his confession in the public sphere. Verse 32, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before man... I will deny him before my Father also in heaven. You can unpack and do a whole sermon on that, those two verses. But the point I'm gleaning from that is that he holds fast to his confession in the public sphere. It is true. It may cost you your life, but would you abandon it? And for the saving your life, he addresses that later on. If you do that, you lose your life. But if you, but if you lose your life, for my sake, you'll find your life. So the true disciple holds fast this confession in the public sphere, in the public forum, even unto death. How often in the scriptures do you see it? And especially in Revelations, blessed is he who endures unto the end. What are they enduring? They're holding fast their confession all the way to the end. Let me just say, we're at a good time to get a little practice in that. Because if you can't hold fast your confession whenever somebody makes fun of you, if you can't hold fast your confession when it might cost you uh, some money or a job, how are you going to hold fast if the sword's hanging over your head? How are you going to hold fast when the stake is there prepared for your burning or the prison cell for your dwelling? How are you going to hold fast then and endure unto the end if you're not already practicing that now? Young people in the, in the school environment, when a, when a friend of yours goes another way or acts in a sinful way and, and would draw you away to act that way with him, will you endure the ridicule from your friend to speak the truth in that moment? Will you hold fast your confession of faith? That's a practicing ground. Because if you learn early on not to hold fast to your faith when things get difficult, there's no way you're going to stand when things get, get really difficult and your very life is on the line. So the true disciple holds fast their faith in the public sphere. Verse 34 and 36 as well, they understand that the darkness cannot abide light. Do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I remember when I first read that verse as a Christian, I thought, well, wait a minute. I, th I thought that's what he did come to bring. Well, in some ways he did. We were at war with God. We were at enmity with God. And through Christ, we have peace with God. Yes, for Christ is my peace. In fact, he's my rest. He's all these things for me. But his arrival, bringing the light into the darkness, was, was going to bring a sword which divides things. Whether it's limbs from bodies or organs from, from abdomens. It is a dividing instrument. It is a divisive instrument. The true disciple understands that darkness cannot abide the light. I didn't come to bring peace, but I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And then he goes through 35 and through 36 in the quotation from Micah there, to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What struck me about these is he's not saying a government against his citizens, politicians against their constituents. I mean, he's, this is in the home. I mean, so, so divisive is this light in darkness that it'll divide families who are otherwise close. They have a biological union. They have a biological relationship. And so, so stri striking is this truth in the midst of deception and lies and darkness that it'll actually divide in, the, in, the, in families. A son will become a an enemy to his own father and a mother to her daughter and a daughter to her mother. 
Since I've read that verse and began to understand that, I've seen that play out over and over again, not only in families, but even in church families. You bring enough light into the church that's got accustomed to living in the dimness, and they'll buck on you too. They'll resist that as well. Because there's something about darkness that hates light. I mentioned earlier, if I come out of my bedroom and somebody flips on the kitchen light and all of its brightness, I can't stand it for about 30 seconds. I'll look away, I'll run away and let my eyes adjust gradually to it or something. But darkness hates light. And so there's no reason to believe that the light of Christ proclaimed and lived out in the darkness of this world will not bring with it division, even down to the very center of a family, a husband and wife and a mother and father and their children. Even mentions in-laws for here in this passage. That goes without saying governments and politicians and organizations and businesses. You bring it out there and it's going to do the same thing, only manifold in its effect. But it's going to strike at the very root of human existence and society. So he understands that darkness cannot abide light. Verse 37, the disciple assigns his highest love and devotion to Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me. This is probably one of the most challenging texts for disciples. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think about that, husbands and wives and children and parents. I just summarized that by saying the true disciple assigns to Christ his highest love and devotion. You know what the irony of that for me is? When I began to understand that, I understood that with that, with him having that proper place in the life of a disciple, then the love I was extending towards others is enhanced. There is a greater love for my wife. There is a greater love for my children. There is a greater, more profound, deeper, longer-lasting, enduring love for those horizontal relationships when this has the highest priority, Christ. The true disciple places that highest priority and devotion upon Christ himself. You've heard the song, Give Me Jesus, one of the Fernando Ortega's songs that I like, Just Give Me Jesus. And I remember thinking that even in my own conversion experience, in the moment where I felt most weighted down by the guilt of my sin and the just condemnation of God Almighty, in that very moment in my mind's eye, I for for the first time saw Christ upon the cross and understood why he was there upon the cross. And in that moment, my heart's cry was, give me Jesus, him alone. Take everything I have, take my wife, my children, take my very life, just give me that Jesus. That's the devotion of a disciple. That's, a, that's, that's the high priority the disciple puts upon the love of Christ, loving Christ and devotion to Christ. Jesus is his highest love and devotion. And everything else finds its proper place only when that is true. Otherwise, they will be in the wrong place. And finally... Verses 38 and 39, the true disciple, the disciple of Christ submits to and bears the instrument of his sanctification. I'm calling that instrument the cross. Verse 38, he who does not take his cross and follow follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Verse 39 particularly, I thought about all all the therapy we hear in our generation today. And, and And the bottom line claim of it is, Come and pay us this money and we'll help you find your life. We'll, you find your life. You need some help. Come and talk to us. We'll help you find your life. And Jesus says clearly, he who finds that will lose that. He'll lose his life. But he who loses his life, for my sake, oh, he's found it. He's found it. His life has been abandoned. He has forsaken his life. His life doesn't even a treasure to him anymore for the favor of Christ himself. That man, that woman, she has life. And if you want to be a disciple of Christ, what you're going to have to do is take up the instrument every day and bear it the rest of your days, all of your life, of your putting to death that old man. The disciple of Christ is carrying an instrument of killing the old man and his desires all of his days. If you don't carry that cross that is putting to death the old man, 
you can't be a disciple of Christ. Because Christ is not discipling lost and wicked men. He's discipling newborn men. And those newborn men are putting off the old and putting on the new more and more. And the instrument of them doing that is the cross that the Lord by His providence brings into their life. That thing that convinces the flesh that it is inadequate here. It is insufficient here. And only Christ is sufficient. You don't want to carry that. You don't want to be a disciple. Here's the bad part. I don't like carrying it. And you probably don't either. Because I don't like pain and I don't like adjustment. I don't like having to be moved from a comfortable place in my life. But it is the only way that I can see this Christ more clearly. It is the only way that I can be transformed by the power of this Christ in my life to look more and more like Christ in my days. It is the only way that I can endure unto the end, even under the sword of death and the threat of death. It is my only hope. I must bear it. And so must you if you would be a disciple. Because there's going to be no followers of Christ who, who after years of following Christ have not put off the old man and put on the new. That's what the Christian life is about. So would you be a disciple this morning? If you are a disciple and have trusted in Jesus Christ, are those descriptions indicative of what's happening in your life and what's happening in your heart? It may be that we're like the church in Revelation, that we have left our first love. And we've, we've made everything practical. And we've become pragmat- pragmatists. We, we do what works. This call to discipleship and following Christ is far greater and more profound than that, which is why I believe it has to be supernaturally provided for by God's grace. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is this sort of discipleship that Israel had gone away from, and you send Amos the prophet and others to to call them back and even brought calamity into their lives as, as a mercy to bring them back, but yet they resisted. And finally, destruction came. And Father, I know all across this nation there are those who would say they are disciples of Jesus, they are believers, they are Christians. But Lord, when we look into our world and it seems awful quiet, it seems awful dark, and it seems to be a very little light shining. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that by your spirit, by your word, by your truth, that you would reaffirm, Father, call us again to the, to the sacrifice of following Christ, the reality of what it means to be dying to self and to be living unto the new man and to Christ. Lord, we ask forgiveness for where we failed in so many ways. We ask forgiveness for our self-exaltation and our self-sufficiency and our dependency upon ourselves. Father, we ask forgiveness for holding up our own abilities against the very essence and the very glory of Christ as though he needed us in some way. Father, thank you for the cross by which these things are made possible for those who are called from death to life and and called to be disciples. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would truly be a disciple of Christ, that we would together grow in our discipleship, we would become more and more like Christ and that it would be manifest more and more as light in this darkened world. Have your way in these moments of invitation. Lord, prompt what you will in the heart and provide the response that you desire. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.